Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Two things. Make sure you download the app, the Veritas app. Share it with your friends. You have access to all of our station's content. And wherever you see Joe and I on social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, until they take us down, of course, uh, please hit a button, like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. There are times... Joe and I love all of our interviews, okay? But when it uh, comes down to interviews we really like to have, today's one of them, right? We have not only because of the topic, but because of the guests that we have on. We are welcoming to the program for the first time J James Rosen, who is the chief White House correspondent as, at Newsmax. So most of you know who he is. Um, and he has written a book on someone who Joe and I revere very, very much, Antonin Scalia. And the name of that book, available at Regnery Publishing and I'm sure other places, which James will tell us, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Now, for those of you who might be living in an igloo for the last 20 years and who don't know who James Rosen is, uh, I want to give a brief introduction. James is a leading reporter, historian, best-selling author. His works appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Politico, Atlantic, Harper's National Review. The list goes on and on. As I mentioned, he is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, following two decades of acclaimed reporting at Fox News. During the Obama administration, Rosen's, Rosen's exclusive reporting on national security subjects led to his being placed under surveillance by the FBI and censored by the State Department. Um, he also has written numerous books, The Strong Man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, uh, Cheney, One-on-One, -on -One, a collection of transcripts uh, with former Vice President Dick Cheney, and A Torch Kept Lit, Great Lives of the 20th Century. James Rosen, welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe, our friend. <laughs> Thank you, Joe and Joe, or as you would be known in Israel, the Josephine. Nice, I love uh, it. I love. We're, we're listen. We're not just borrowing that, James. We're stealing that. It's we love yours. It's yours. <laughs> Thank you, brother. So with that, I'm going to hand it. This is going to be a great discussion. I do want to start with this though, because I find it very interesting. Okay, so we have your book, and for those of you who are going to watch this on social media, please go out. Here's the book. I find it interesting, and I love your comments because you could already hear it, James. I'm sure, maybe even you've heard it yourself. Where ah, oh, what is this? Some sort of uh, you know, right wing book about Anthony Scalia. I found it interesting that the first praise on the back of the book is Scalia rise to greatness ranks among the finest biographies of a Supreme Court justice or any judge that I have ever read that was written by Nadine Strassen and for those who don't know Nadine Strassen she's a board member of the ACLU um, leftist constitutional scholar teaches law at NYU I think that that's high praise indeed do you have a, any thoughts on that James well, thank you again to both of you for having me and for spotlighting the book. Uh, and you're you're quite astute to to point that out that the blurbs or the advanced praise that appears uh, on the back jacket of the book, uh, I think there's ten blurbs, and it was a very determined effort 
by the publisher and me to secure um, testimonials from people from across the ideological spectrum. So Nadine Strassen is a longtime past president of the ACLU. Uh, that's someone who didn't agree philosophically or in terms of jurisprudence with Antonin Scalia, but the two of them were friends and they, uh, they debated together on stage frequently in different parts of the world. I have never met Nadine Strassen, so it's not like she did this for me because she's as a favor to a friend. Uh, we have blurbs from Glenn Kessler, who is a friend of mine, who is the fact checker at the Washington Post. Uh, there is a blurb from John Harris, who is one of the founding the founders of Politico. Uh, there's also a blurb from, uh, from Lee Lieberman Otis, who has special credentials in Scalia world. Uh, Lee Lieberman, as a student, was the person who recruited Antonin Scalia to serve as the first uh, faculty advisor to the Federalist Society uh, at its inception in 1982 on the campus of University of Chicago Law School. She then became a clerk for Scalia, both, uh, and this puts her in a very rare category, the elite ring, if you will, of what Scalia used to call the clerk aradi. Um, she served as a clerk for Scalia, both on the Court of Appeals and then on the U.S. Supreme Court as well. And she was remains uh, a senior executive uh, at the Federalist Society. So yes, there is praise from many different quarters for this book, and I'm and I'm proud of that. And I'm grateful that you mentioned it. Yeah, because that was one thing that always impressed me about Scalia himself was that he he was a very even keel person. I never saw him uh, as as an an ideologue or you know uh, a political activist, and and it's good to see that because then other people obviously recognize that too. So I just wanted to throw that out there, Joe Resinello, Where do you want to start? Well, James, it is our custom to say a little prayer because I I will be honest with you, my favorite woman of all time is Jewish, and it is the Blessed Mother. And I always like to say a little prayer to her before we begin to give us a little guidance. Uh, remember, O oh, most gracious Virgin Mary, never was it known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided, inspired by this confidence. We fly into you, a virgin of virgins, our mother. To you we stand, but for you we stand sinful and sorrowful, a mother of the word incarnate, despise not our petitions, but in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. James, I got to be honest. You've written a lot. I mean, you've 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 touched on a lot of very historic people in American history. Why Scalia? What attracted you to this man? Um, to be honest with you, I find him to be a very interesting figure. Why did you find him interesting? So one of the first things I did when I came to Washington way back in 1999 to be a young Washington correspondent at the time for the Fox News Channel, I was 30 years old, was to write to Justice Scalia to seek an interview with him. Uh, and the reason I did that was because years before that, way back in the 1980s when I was in high school, uh, watching PBS, I saw uh, Justice Scalia appear on a program called the Constitution, that delicate balance. And this was a kind of a theater in the round uh, setting with a live studio audience, and it was a moderated program. The moderator was the former president of CBS News, Fred Friendly. And the panelists included eminent minds of the time, such as Antonin Scalia or Sandra Day O'Connor or Dan Rather or Gerald Ford, and they would debate hypothetical scenarios. And Scalia just struck me immediately uh, as fundamentally different from all the panelists on the program. Uh, he spoke in terms that a layman could understand, and I should point out that this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, is very much written for a lay audience. Even non-lawyers can enjoy it, and I predict will find themselves at times cracking up when they read it. Uh, and he was humorous and unafraid to be sarcastic. And so when I came to Washington in 1999, I wrote to him to seek an interview, and this commenced between us 
an unusual and frequently amusing correspondence that spanned about two years. And it also led to a pair of lunches that we had, just the two of us each time, one-on-one -on -one each time. Uh, these were held at the long-gone restaurant that was Scalia's favorite, a very modest Italian restaurant called A.V. Ristorante Italiano on what was, uh, at the time, in what was a fairly sketchy part of Washington, D.C. But Scalia had been going to this place um, since the 1950s when he was attending Georgetown University. And we drank wine together. Uh, he made me eat off of his plate. I said, Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He's, come on, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate into my mouth. Uh, he even gave me rides back to my office on each occasion. And I have confirmed Joe and Joe through my research that uh, uh, for even for, for students who traveled with Scalia to debate tournaments way back in the 1950s, all the way up through Supreme Court clerks in the 21st century, being a passenger in a car driven by Antonin Scalia was as unnerving for them as it proved for me. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Uh, in any case, he was so generous to a to a young reporter so long ago. The substantive discussions we had at lunch will remain off the record, as was stipulated at the time. But I hope in volume two of this biography uh, to excerpt from some of the um, from some of our amusing correspondence. Wait, uh, just to ask you, it kind of begs the question. So when when do you uh, uh, project that volume two might be coming out? <laughs> well, uh, you know this this book began its life as a concise biography. Uh, and of course, those who know me well, most especially Mrs. Rosen, know I don't do anything concise. Uh, I think you'll find that out in this very podcast. But um, um, uh, so I have a great strong impetus to finish it quickly, because the one person who was less than thrilled to see this metamorphose into two volumes, uh, and thereby extend Justice Scalia's lease on the lives of the Rosens for another two years was Mrs. Rosen. So I have uh, ample impetus to finish it, hopefully, if not before then, I'll be back with the both of you in about two years' time. All right. Well, that sounds good. Hopefully we have you back in the meantime. If you're just joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. That is the book. It's uh, published by Regner Republishing and the author, James Rosen, Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax. So, James, let's start at the beginning for uh Obviously, that's a logical place to start. How did his upbringing, Antonin Scalia's upbringing, form him? What are like some some of the general ways that that formed him into the man that he would eventually become? So, this book, Scalia: Rise to Greatness, which just came out, um, just captures the first fifty years of Antonin Scalia's life. It ends with him taking his seat on the Supreme Court, and it examines, in essence, how he got there. How did this uh, kid from Queens, as he liked to call himself, um, make it all the way to the pinnacle of his profession and be confirmed by the United States Senate 98 to nothing, uh, which was a slight imperfection that bothered Justice Scalia well into the 21st century. Um, and really, he is a product of a bunch of different forces and factors, uh, like everyone else, his parents, of course. But, uh, you know, for some Americans who rose to prominence in the 20th century, we might identify as the sort of um, grounding experience for them, let's say, the Depression or World War II. Uh, or the Cold War or some such thing. But for Antonin Scalia, it really was the immigrant experience. And at the time of his confirmation to the Supreme Court in 1986, it was widely um, stated, and accurately so, that Scalia's story really is the embodiment of the American dream, of the power of the American dream. Scalia's father came to this country in 1920 from Sicily, not speaking a word of English and with only $400 in his pocket, 
and uh, he made of himself a renowned professor of Romance languages. Uh, Scalia's mother was the daughter of Italian immigrants, and uh, she made herself into a school teacher, and they were devout Catholics. And uh, we'll talk more, I suppose, later in the show about the fact that there were two existing biographies of Antonin Scalia that had been done. Both came out while he was alive. One of them he cooperated with extensively, the other not at all. And both came out pretty much in the same place, which is to say open in their hostility to Justice Scalia and his conduct and his jurisprudence and his legacy. Uh, This is the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia, I like to say, because it's the first admiring one. And it's the first to treat in the requisite depth and scope certain uh, factors and forces in his rise to greatness, uh, such as his Catholicism, which I like to call the rocket fuel uh, for his rise to greatness. Uh, From these three influences, um, his mother, who venerated form and composition, and who made sure he hung out with the right kids and hosted the Cub Scout meetings right there in the Scalia family home in Queens, uh, from his father, uh, the academic, the stern academic, whose own published writings warned of the perils of the original meaning of a sacred text being distorted by a dishonest translator or interpreter, and from the sacred foundational texts of the Catholic Church and and the liturgy of the Catholic Church, from all of these influences, young Nino Scalia emerged with a profound reverence for the original meaning of sacred texts, and he brought this forward throughout his life and into his career as a judge and a justice by championing originalism as his theory of how judges and justices are supposed to do their jobs, which is interpret the meaning of the Constitution or a given statute. James, James Rosen is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. James, let me ask you a question a little just just to go a little further with one thing you said. Do you find that that uh, what's lacking, at least as far as like when you look at biographies of well-known people, is that a lot of times they're attacking. Now, whether it's right attacking left, left attacking right, okay, it's like you rarely – Read something like your book that's that's like you said it's praising 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 Antonin Scalia because everything seems to come down to just politics and in this case not necessarily politics but his jurisprudence his view of the guy you mentioned originalism is like well that's all anathema we don't want to hear any of that and therefore he's a bad guy like like right. that you find that's lacking and and really I think it holds us back in our culture that we can't objectively look at people. A lot of people subscribe to the view that behind every great fortune there is a crime. Uh, Scalia didn't make a great fortune, but the same holds true in many people's eyes for anyone of any success or prominence. And so uh, there's a view that the surest route to profit and sensationalism is to find the dirt and to produce some kind of account of a famous or prominent person that traffics in in, uh, in their dereliction or in their secret scandals or what have you. And here, the Mm. secret story, the much better story, uh, the saleable story, was that this man and his wife, Maureen Scalia, led uh, an exemplary Catholic life together. Um, And I I have noted that a number of the reviews of the book to date, uh, from um, what we might say are faith-based outlets or publications such as Focus on the Family, uh, I think one of them is the, the National Catholic Register. Um, they have noted the the centrality of Catholicism in my story of Scalia's rise, and they have done so with a kind of uh, almost um, um, astonishment that um, that faith itself would appear so centrally in a modern biography of an American public figure and that faith would be taken seriously in those pages. And it's extraordinary to me that that would be seen as extraordinary. But um, 
these were the influences that enabled Scalia to rise. Uh, one of the sets of documents that I uh, was able to access that the previous hostile biographers either uh, overlooked or were unavailable to them was uh, Justice Scalia's FBI files, which were unsealed after his death in 2016. Uh, Scalia underwent four different FBI background checks within 14 years, from 1972 to 86, as he rose through the executive and judicial branches. And his career, prior to going on to the Supreme Court, which is the subject of this book, uh, was very profound and consequential for all Americans, quite apart from his work on on the Supreme Court, but um, it's unusual to undergo four FBI background checks within 14 years. And these FBI files for Antonin Scalia stretch hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, and you can see the process growing more computerized over the 14 year span as they start to search quote unquote data banks and, and the mm. like. Um, but uh, here you had the vast machinery of the world's preeminent law enforcement organization cranked up with agents fanned out across the country uh, interviewing associates of Scalia's that dated back to when he was 13 in 1949, all in an effort to locate any kind of derogatory information about Antonin Scalia that might exist anywhere in the world. And none turned up for the simple reason that none existed. As I say, he and, and, and Maureen Scalia lived exemplary Catholic lives together, but page after page after page after page of these hundreds of pages of FBI documents, you see the agents told the same thing again and again. Not only this is an honest man, this is the most honest man I've ever met. Not this is a brilliant man, this is the most brilliant man I've ever met. And not this is man is qualified for a federal judgeship. This man is the most qualified person for a federal judgeship you could possibly imagine. And as I say in the book, and again, his Catholicism is central to all of this, would that all lives paid such close scrutiny would reward with such superlative testimonials. Absolutely. If you're just joining us here, James Rosen has written a new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 and 1986. I'm going to hand it over to Joe James, but uh, very quickly, where can our audience members purchase the book? You can go on Amazon.com, Books A Million, Regnery.com gives discounts for orders over 50 bucks. Uh, at, you can follow me on Twitter, at James Rosen TV, and I'm constantly tweeting about it. Uh, it's not hard to find. All right. Uh, and there's an I should point out, there is an audiobook version and a Kindle version. Okay. Thank you for that, James. Joe Rosanello. One of the many things that I find endearing about this man is what you said in the story when you went to dinner with him. Eat of my plate. Come on, come on. Like, he wasn't pretentious. Like, here's a guy who's the smartest guy in every room he goes into, arguably, and he's down to earth. And I think that has something to do with, you mentioned earlier, you're from Staten Island. I grew up in North Jersey. My father was a barber. Joe's father was a teamster. My grandparents came, didn't speak English. You're raised a certain way, the way we were raised. You were raised. He was raised. He was just gifted, but it didn't like he didn't hold. I mean, you're you're in the world, James, as I am. I work, you know, out there. People don't act that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like especially someone who goes to Harvard or or finishes the valedictorian to Georgetown. That's not how it rolls. That's not how he was. I find that to be incredibly endearing. And I think people will relate to it. So when we, we examine the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life and how he made it to the Supreme Court, which is what this book does, um, we, we see his Catholicism as a central influence. We see the influence of his father and his, his, his reverence for the sacred, uh, the sanctity of, of original meaning of text and his mother 
uh, we see these influences fueling his rise. Uh, there was also, of course, uh, Maureen Scalia and her extraordinary sacrifices, raising nine children with very oh. little assistance from Justice Scalia, as he always said. Um, and uh, all of us, all Americans benefit from Antonin Scalia's legacy. He's not just one of the most important justices of, of recent histories, one of the most important Americans of the last hundred years. And to the extent that all Americans feel his, his impact today, and we all do, uh, we all owe Maureen Scully an extraordinary debt uh, because of her sacrifices and her contributions to, that enabled her husband to rise. But the other innate characteristics of the man, which you just touched on, were also central. His capacity for hard work, his sense of honor, and also his affability. Uh, and you, you, you talk about how he's down to earth. Uh, like, like I said before, the substantive discussions we had at lunch will remain off the record, but I'll share with you one story about lunch. Because again, as I sat there as a 30-year-old uh, novice in Washington, uh, it dawned on me that one, due to just his sheer affability and, and how down to earth he was, making me eat off of his plate, that one could be forgiven for forgetting from time to time that you were in the presence of one of the great minds of our time. He just seemed like a kind of avuncular Italian uncle, like Paul Sorvino, or that you imagine Paul Sorvino to be like, the late, great Paul Sorvino. Uh, but uh, I got to the restaurant first, and it was a dark, modest place with a long, straight chute uh, where the front door opened up. And it was a brilliant, sunny day. And at a certain point, Silhouetted in the front window of the place and the front door walking in is this slightly portly, jaunty figure strolling towards me, and it's Justice Scalia. And he sits down, and pleasantries are effectuated, uh, and we're each looking at the menu. The waiter was a young guy who was actually Italian and spoke only broken English. And uh, Scalia looks at the menu, and he says to the waiter, Pulpy, what is pulpy? And the waiter says, Octopus. And he says, octopus, I'll have the pulpy. And he hands the, 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 you know, with great sort of Jackie Gleason grandiloquence, he hands the menu to the waiter. And now I have little rules I follow about when I'm having a meal with somebody I want to impress. You know, I, you know, nothing that where you have to eat with your hands, nothing that could splash like pasta, like marinara sauce, you know, just something easily manipulable with knife and fork. And coming from Staten Island, I knew what, just what to order. I said, I'll have the veal parmesan, right? Nice and easy. Or as we say on Staten Island, two guys having a catch. Right. So and the guy's writing it down and Scalia says, just interrupts and he says, no, give him the rabbit. And the waiter and I look at Justice Scalia and in unison, we say rabbit. And he says, yeah, give him the rabbit. You're going to like the He's going to like the rabbit. Give him the rabbit. And the guy disappears with the menu. Now, I didn't want rabbit. I had never had, I had never had rabbit in my whole life. Right. And now the thing comes, and I don't know how it's served. Is it like a fish with the head on? You see the eyes or something? And, you know, I'm just sort of making my way through this, and I'm trying to keep eye contact with this, you know, one of the great minds of our time. And uh, I realized at a certain point that I had placed my fork directly into what looked like, in, in my mind's eye, in retrospect, looking back on this 25 years later, looked like it might have been like a little ball of, like, guacamole. It was green. And I don't know, is that the eye? I don't know how they serve rabbit, you know? So I, it dawned on me instantaneously that I was just going to have to, in order to maintain that eye contact, just shove this green pile of undiscernible something or other into my mouth and just swallow it quickly and keep nodding. I, to this day, I don't know what it was. And, you know, what do we have here when we take a step back? We have the country's foremost opponent of judicial activism overruling my lunch order. <laughs> right? it, it hasn't happened to me since, and I will also tell you that I haven't had rabbits since. 
Fair enough. Yeah, listen, I don't, I don't blame you. My rabbit was something my mother used to threaten us with if we didn't like the dinner that she was serving that night. She says, yeah, well, anyway, we won't, we won't go into that. James Rosen joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out and buy his book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. I'm loving this conversation. I'm so happy you mentioned the, the fat Italian uncle because as we through the course of the conversation over the last 20 minutes or so, that's all I kept thinking about was my, my big fat Italian uncle, just giving him a big, big hug. Every time I, said, I spoke Scalia, though, I, that's, that's how I, 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 I viewed him. I said avuncular. I didn't say fat, but, you know. Okay, I'm I, well, I'm a, I'm a heavy guy, so I could say it. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and, he was and, so and down I, to earth. And, 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 um, and of course, you know, he, he could sing and play the piano. And he was, uh, he was apt at, uh, on a moment's notice to uh, shamelessly commandeer a piano in someone's house and belt out show tunes or Christmas carols for, for 50 people uh, and not think, think of it. You know, he was truly gifted in so many ways. I know you're going to get into it in your in your next book more from 86 to, you know, moving forward to when he passed away. But that's the way I always saw him, obviously not as someone who's a constitutional scholar. But, hey, we're American citizens. We know the Constitution. We know its basic tenets and what it says. He always struck me as the type of guy who says, uh, like, even though he was gifted, kind of like, well, everybody could get this. This is not this is not rocket science. The Constitution is not rocket science. What I always felt comfortable listening to him talk about the Constitution because he didn't bring you down into the weeds or try to talk to you about the Constitution to put forth a political argument. Um, he just kind of, this is the, the way it works. This is the way it's structured. You get it, don't you, Joe? Don't you, James? Don't, well, don't you was, get it? This is the way. It was important to him that his judicial opinions, but all writings that um, that he put his name to, and we've got in this book his writings, previously unpublished examples of his writings from every phase of his career. But he was explicit on the point in telling the people who worked for him and people who worked with him that he, he wanted his opinions and all writing about the law to be understandable by people who were not lawyers. And he would spice up his opinions with, with wisecracks and things that really helped clarify the issues. And so, for example, uh, there was one case from his Supreme Court tenure uh, where um, an agency was seeking to um, to extract greater authority from the statute than Scalia thought really the agency should have, uh, or that any anyone who's just reading the plain language of the statute would ever grant the agency. And as he put it, uh, Congress does not hide elephants in mouse holes. Uh, you know, he just had that way of clarifying this ingenious gift for metaphor uh, to make sure that what we would call regular folks could understand his opinions. That was very important to him. Absolutely. James Rosen, once again, before we go to a break, where can folks buy the book? Amazon.com, Books A Million, uh, Regnery.com, any, any brick and mortar store where fine books are sold. Uh, and of course, you're always free to log on to Twitter and find me at, at James Rosen TV. And at, uh, at, we can direct at James Rosen TV. Absolutely. So the book is Scalia Rise to Greatness. We're joined by the author, uh, chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, James Rosen. A true honor for Joe and I to have him. But stick around because we have another great segment with James Rosen. James Rosen, don't go anywhere. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in. And let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. 
Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. We are away in the breach with James Rosen. He's the author of Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. James is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. We ask you all to please go out and buy the book. You can follow James at, at James Rosen TV on Twitter, at James Rosen TV on Twitter. Joe Resinello. James, I want to circle back to something you said about the FBI background checks. Now, there were four of them, hundreds of pages of looking into his life. I can't even imagine it, to be completely honest with you. And you noted that he was clean, squeaky clean. How does this man, if he was going to be up for the same job now, fare? Here you have a man that has nine children, which says that doesn't mean he's perfect, but he takes his faith seriously. And that's clearly a sacrifice, no matter what religion you are. Whether you believe in God or not, you know, if a man and a woman are raising nine kids, that's a sacrifice. You're not exactly doing what you want. Raising one is a sacrifice. There you go. <laughs> raising nine is hard. I would say it's I, I feel I've, I've got two sons, my wife and I, and we both feel very sacrificial. I listen, I have five and my house is nuts. And I'll just say that. And it stretches you. And so I, I could, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. How does he fare? Because to be honest with you, nowadays, if you do something right, that's in my book, irrefutably right. Here's a person who's trying to like, he's faithful to his wife. He's raising nine kids. You're a bad guy. Like you're a bad guy. Like, like how does he fare now? Well, it's impossible to say with certainty. It, it, it uh, plunges us into the realm of the speculatives clearly labeled as such. Um, I, one imagines that Antonin Scalia would be subject to the same meat grinder that is brought to all public figures in modern life, uh, especially in the, uh, in the advent of social media. Um, I'm frequently asked in these interviews I've been doing to promote the book, what would Scalia have thought about fill in the blank, January 6th, or the, um, the fight over Brett Kavanaugh, or uh, any number of different um, public figures and events from today. And... Um, because of the particular philosophy that Scalia championed, which which changed the law in this country, and that's what really um, gives us the impact for his legacy on all Americans today, the the particular philosophy he advanced and championed and 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 helped make standard in this country was called originalism. Um, what uh, when Scalia came along as a judge, he was a judge on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. That's one rung below the Supreme Court. It's often described as the second most powerful court in America because its work so frequently shapes the work of the Supreme Court and its personnel so frequently become the justices of the Supreme Court. It was there, for example, that he met and became great friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Robert Bork was on that court alongside Ginsburg and Scalia. So was Kenneth Starr and Larry Silverman, a real murderer's row of judicial talent. But the years that Scalia served on that court before he was elevated to the Supreme Court, we're talking 82 to 86, when Scalia came along as a federal judge, there prevailed in the law a liberal notion called the living constitution. Mm -hmm. This is the idea that the meaning of the constitution should expand like a living organism to take account of modern phenomena that the founders could never have envisioned, such as nuclear weapons or the internet or what have you. And in order to breathe this expanded meaning into the constitution or any given statute that's been passed since then, liberal judges would look past the text of these of these uh, documents, and instead look at the legislative intent behind them, 
what was said in all those House and Senate floor debates, what was printed in all of those committee reports that were generated as a given measure snaked its way through the process. Scalia stood athwart all of that. His view was that when judges and justices are engaged in their central business, which is interpreting the meaning of the Constitution or a given statute, they should adhere to the original meaning of that document, the meaning it was widely understood to have at the time that it was enacted, and how best to discern the original meaning of a constitutional provision or a statute by looking at the text itself. And as I put it in the book, textualism is sort of the metal detector we use to find the original meaning of the Constitution or a statute. This was considered revolutionary stuff uh, when Scalia came to the federal bench in 1982. Uh, to me, it always seemed rather commonsensical. Of course, you'd want to look at the text of the law to figure out its meaning. Of course, you'd want to look at the original meaning of the law and not graft onto that law your own latter-day meanings or your own latter-day policy preferences and so forth. Because if you do that, uh, then in essence, my word's not Justice Scalia's, you're traveling back in time and you're robbing a whole generation of their democratic self-governance. Let's say that you're a fan of a law that President Biden signed last year conferring legal protection on same-sex marriages. Um, how would you like it if five years from now, 10 years from now, 200 years from now, some unelected judge comes along and says, ah, actually, I think the text of that law, should the meaning of it should be expanded beyond its text to mean what I want it to mean. Um, but by the time Scalia died, no less a figure than Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, had proclaimed, in essence, as a result of this revolution by Scalia, which changed the way that Lawyers argue the law before judges and justices, change the way that judges and justices write their opinions for the law, change even the way that lawmakers craft laws. And again, this touches every American, obviously. Uh, Justice Kagan said, thanks to Justice Scalia, we are all originalists now. That's his true legacy. Uh, but uh, when I'm asked what he would have thought of something that takes place today, seven years after Justice Scalia passed from the scene, I'm leery of ascribing to him some views on public events or personalities that he never would have had the opportunity to to conceive or to express. It, that would make me guilty of the very thing that he spent his his career inveighing against, grafting uh, new meanings onto an existing body or canon of work, if you will. Absolutely. James, let me ask you this. Let's talk about a um, little bit about uh, Scalia in front of Congress. Um, yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier his humor, um, which I, I do want you maybe to give our audience an example or two of that. I will tell you something that I remember him saying in front of Congress, which, again, you know, having followed him from my adult life, let's say, and especially with the Internet, now you could go back and watch videos of, you know, a, an interview or something in front of Congress from 25 years ago. Um, I remember that he, he had said to, he, he was it's almost like. You mentioned the uh, avuncular uncle, right? But the older guy kind of schooling the kids a little bit. Kids, come here. let me let me tell you how things work. He was telling a story about over in France. He was asked, he was told by uh, somebody in France, one of the political leaders said, you have people in America, you do things awfully slow. And long story short, he looked at the guy and says, yeah, that's by design. <laughs> we're not Europeans. That, that's that's by design uh, we, because we don't act on, we're not supposed to, under our constitution, act with every political whim that comes by. We're supposed to be more deliberate trying to explain this. But I felt like he was explaining that to the Congress, um, to the members of the House that were questioning him. What, what do you give us a, our audience of a, maybe an interesting story of Scalia in front of the uh, the, the rocket scientists in our in our Congress? So Scalia 
testified before the House and Senate many, many times back in the post-Watergate era during the days of Gerald R. Ford when Scalia served as the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, and it was his job to go up and testify before the Judiciary Committees, uh, the Intelligence Committees, um, and explain why a proposed law was a bad idea or why um, documents subpoenaed by this or that committee could not be turned over and so forth. Really what he was doing in those appearances was fighting very determinedly to preserve the powers of the presidency itself uh, from an onslaught in this post-Watergate time uh, by Democratic lawmakers and, and the liberal media, which were bent on emasculating the presidency and the intelligence community. Scalia and other conscientious conservatives of that time understood that after Watergate and its subsidiary scandals faded from the headlines, the country would still need a strong executive. And so he fought for that. Uh, but he was very often in these um, in these encounters with members of Congress uh, in hearings back in the 1970s, more knowledgeable about the substance of their own bills that they were putting forward than the lawmakers themselves. And I, I have a whole chapter that that recounts some of these extraordinary moments, uh, which I entitled Il Matador, because, uh, look, Scalia was the valedictorian at Xavier High School in the 1950s in Manhattan, a rare Jesuit academy that was also a military school. Uh, he was then valedictorian at Georgetown University. These, he received a strict Jesuit education where they spoke multiple languages and they would have to conjugate Latin verbs under the threat of a stopwatch in 60 seconds. And he was a champion debater. There was no one in Congress uh, who could who could hold a candle to that kind of mastery of rhetoric and logic. I'll tell you one funny thing he said before Congress. This was later when he was Supreme Court Justice, um, an agency that Scalia had, had headed in the 1970s called the Administrative Conference of the United States, which is sort of like a think tank for the federal regulatory state, tries to come up with ways to improve the performance of the regulatory agencies. Uh, he spent two years as chairman of that administrative conference. Uh, the, the, that agency was went defunct, and then it was revived in the Clinton era. And they had a hearing in the House uh, where the two witnesses before the panel were uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer, Stephen Breyer, who also had a history of working for what was known as ACUS, the Administrative Conference of the United States. And the very first question put to Justice Scalia uh, by the, the chairman of this subcommittee uh, on the, 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 the revival of ACUS was, uh, we have the, the incoming person who's going to serve as the chairman in the audience a few rows behind you. Justice Scalia, what advice would you give him as we launch ACUS anew? And Justice Scalia said, do good and avoid evil. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of simple, right? <laughs> I mean, and again, saying that the Congress might not seem so obvious to them. James, Rose is, James Rosen is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out, buy his book. And if you oh, got a little screwed up there, buy his book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. You could buy it Amazon. You could buy it at bookstores. You could buy it at the publisher, Regnery Publishing. James is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. Joe Racinello. James, I want to talk about his relationship to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think this is so important because they were so different, but they sincerely liked each other. Like, And I think this is something that people should look to. You couldn't be more different in plain English, but yet they respected each other and they liked each other. And we have lost that in this country. There is no longer a let's agree to disagree, but how about we go to lunch? I like you. You need help? I'll help you. You're a decent person. Okay, we don't agree. Fine. Nope. 
it's gone. <laughs> but that was not the case with these two people. Talk so about that. I think that could teach the world, especially our culture, so much. So uh, I wrote a previous book about William F. Buckley Jr., another devout Catholic who, uh, like Antonin Scalia, uh, preferred the High Latin Mass and was critical of Vatican II. Uh, Buckley had a great friendship with someone who was on the opposite end of the ideological spectrum from him, the late John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the economist and President Kennedy's ambassador to India. And he and Buckley used to debate each other ferociously on television. And then they would go skiing every year in, in Gestad, Switzerland together. They were best friends. Um, for the modern age, we have uh, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, one of the revelations of this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, is that their great friendship didn't begin on the Supreme Court. It began when they served together, as I mentioned previously, on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, one rung below the Supreme Court. From 82 to 86, they served together. Uh, then Scalia gets elevated to the Supreme Court, and Ginsburg joins him there seven years later. Uh, but they were, juris in jurisprudential terms, polar opposites. Um, she had worked for the, I believe, the ACLU and was um, every inch the committed, fiery, liberal jurist. Um, and Antonin Scalia, of course, was a, a, a social conservative, uh, devout Catholic, um, and jurisprudentially, favored originalism and textualism rather than legislative intent in the living constitution which which ruth bader ginsburg favored but they were the best of friends and they didn't just like each other they loved each other and their spouses loved each other and they spent they rang in every new year's together and scalia and ginsburg went to the opera together and they rode indian uh, elephants in india together uh, their relationship has been enshrined in stage plays in operas and Joe, I even uh, saw a life coach recently online urging us all to go out and find the Ginsburg for our inner Scalia. Nice. But uh, no, no, no previous biography had ever uh, been able to trace the true origin of this friendship. And one of the sets of documents that I gained access to for this book, which had never been uh, reviewed before, by any biographer of Antonin Scalia or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, was her papers at the Library of Congress, 220 boxes of them. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers from her Supreme Court tenure remain closed. Just about all of Antonin Scalia's papers remain closed. They're up at the Harvard Law School Library. I did work with the archivists there to pry out some documents and some uh, previously unpublished photographs, which are in their great photograph section for this book. Uh, but just to give you an example of uh, how long it's going to be before Justice Scalia's papers open up, or the, the bulk of them, um, I asked the, the archivists at Harvard, could you please help me identify the date of my second and final lunch with Justice Scalia? I know it was in the fall term of 2001. And they politely replied to me that, no, they couldn't help me because that segment of Justice Scalia's papers will not be open to researchers until 2032. But... RBG's papers from her time on the Court of Appeals are open. So are the papers of Robert Bork and other judges from that panel at that time. And uh, Joe and Joe, to see the handwritten notes, the letters, the correspondence, the memos, the draft opinions that were flying back and forth between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia during that time when they served on the Court of Appeals together, 82 to 86, uh, not only do you see two geniuses squaring off over the First Amendment and the other issues that were coming before them as judges. But it captures, uh, in their own words, in real time, uh, their affection for each other, their sparkling wit, 
and really the birth and the blossoming of this famous friendship. And it's never been published before. I call it the RBG Nino Papers. And again, it's in their own words in real time. Uh, and you can see, for example, uh, uh, Judge Ginsburg at the time um, quelling over Antonin Scalia, almost with a maternal instinct, worrying if his workload is too much. She was already on the court for two years when he got there. She was appointed by Jimmy Carter. Uh, she quells over him. She needles him. She provokes him. Uh, she she challenges him. Uh, all that at the same time, she might be writing to Robert Bork and saying, behind Scalia's back, in essence, here's what we have to do to address Nino's challenge. And at, from his part, you see Scalia letting down his hair. And letting down, letting up an argument with with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's when she says at one point, if you change your 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 opinion on point X, we could be unanimous. And he would scribble on her uh, memo and send it back to her chambers. Let's be unanimous. A.S. Uh, he would write things in such superlative praise of her that probably it was unknown to his brightest students and clerks, and maybe even to the Scalia children. Uh, brilliant. I could think of no uh, no suggestions for revision. You know, once again, outstanding, and so on. And at one. Point, when he apologizes to her for uh, being late with one of his opinions, quote, sloth that I am. So it's a very intimate portrait of this famous friendship, which you're right, Joe, is instructive for all of us, especially in our hyper-polarized culture today. Why can't Amen. we do that today? In all honesty, like, like what is missing? Like why? Like we see things. It is so bitter. And you even see it on the streets of New York. I, I work in the city. I mean, you walk, people are not, Pleasant. Well, James, you're you're the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. You've been seeing this for your whole career. You've had to have seen this change from uh, the, your, what you discuss. Obviously, you're talking about a deep friendship that two people have. But let's just take it just a little step further. Uh, how about just some basic civility? Yeah. How some? We. Th th I mean, you're you you're you're in it. You're you're in the, you're in the breach. Okay. Right. Uh, every day for your profession, you had to have seen this over the last twenty years. It's it's to the point where it's almost it's almost hopeless. People are at each other's throats because nobody looks at each other as a human being. You're just you're just a political position. To to uh, Joe's question, why why don't we do this today? Why doesn't this happen today? My answer, in short, is social media. Um, social media. Um, you know, uh, just pours gasoline on every conflict uh, for for profit, in essence, uh, and it and it's an inhibitor of true political leadership, I would say. Um, but you're also right to say, um, Joe, that I that I've experienced this every day in my own work for Newsmax and previously for Fox News. Um, I've been going to the White House press briefings on and off since 1999, um, and. Um, for most of that experience, um, you would have observed the press secretary, regardless of which party he or she served, making an effort to call on everybody in the room at least once or at least once a week. Uh, everyone understood and understands that the first two rows have the largest audiences and listenerships and viewerships, so maybe they would get more time than reporters in the back rows. But uh, now under uh, Jen Psaki and now Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, they simply won't call on me at all. OK. And um, is it why is that? Is it because my questions are uh, off the mark and 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 they stray too long and they just they, they make no sense? No, um, it's you know, it's part of this this poisonous atmosphere. Um, and, you know, RBG used to say that she would dread seeing uh, one of Antonin Scalia's dissents uh, show up at her chambers to one of her opinions. 
because she knew it was going to have his usual rapier-like wit. Uh, but she also said that when she would read his dissents, it had the effect of making her own majority opinions stronger because she could uh, account for his arguments and incorporate responses into her opinion. And I've tried to make the case to KJP that, uh, you know, I'm going to make you a better briefer if you call on me. You shouldn't be afraid of me in essence. But I'm left to conclude that that's what the problem is. And it's an example of the kind of poisonous incivility that, that didn't exist even as, as recently as 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Okay, well, you know, when Joe and I were coming up, and back in the day you mentioned William F. Buckley and fire line, Firing Line, one of the models for our show and one of the ways we try to conduct business here is along those same lines. I mean, we've watched William F. Buckley with Noam Chomsky or Norman Mailer or, or, or at the time, uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, discussing the pornography case and all that. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of the model we want to be. If, if I'm not going to be afraid to have you on the show simply because we disagree. And it seems that that's the toxic atmosphere there is now, is I'm afraid of the question you might ask me. So ergo, I'm not going to call on you. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, people like yourself being in the mix as you are, will be, um, you know, have a, a positive effect and hopefully changing that around. We have a, a little bit more time. Uh, let's try to maybe get back to Scalia's personal life. The book is Scalia in 1936 and 1986, um, his rise to greatness. Joe Resinello, I'm going to leave it with you. We probably have about another five minutes or so. Three greatest accomplishments of this man, in your view. What do you think? Again, the revolution he wrought, first as a federal judge and then as a justice for 29 terms on the Supreme Court, in orienting lawyers, lawmakers, and judges toward originalism and away from the idea that there's a living constitution and that the meaning of any constitutional provision or any statute is up for grabs for whatever the latest judge wants to expand that meaning to or contract it to. Uh, Scalia's idea that, that judges and justices should adhere to the original meaning uh, of a given statute or constitutional provision, and that to find the original meaning, they should look principally at the text of the document itself. That was revolutionary. And as I say, uh, the fact that uh, no, no, no less a figure than Justice Kagan, a liberal on the court, would say that thanks to Scalia, we're all originalists now. Again, that touches every area of American life because the rulings of these courts touch our constitutional rights, our, our criminal prosecutions, our civil cases, and so on. So we, we all live, uh, to some extent, in a world reshaped by Antonin Scalia and his force of personality. I would say his family is certainly one of his top three accomplishments. And this gives me an opportunity to, to speak a little bit about Maureen Scalia. I've been very pleased that some reviewers, of actually two different reviewers of this book, have said that where Antonin Scalia is the star of this book, Maureen Scalia is the hero. Uh, and in the previous works, uh, one of which Maureen Scalia herself cooperated with, they really didn't touch on this in the kind of intimacy and depth that uh, that readers will experience in Scalia Rise to Greatness. By the time uh, Scalia is 40 and he's working for the Ford administration in a very high position, testifying before Congress, as we discussed, um, he is now experiencing greater absences from home life as, he, as his workload increases. And... Um, uh, at that point, uh, anytime he wanted to travel overseas for an American Bar Association conference or what have you, he was required to submit his travel plans and requests to the National Security Council at the White House. And routinely, they granted their approval. But there's a rich record in the Ford Presidential Library of Scalia's correspondence along these lines with the National Security Council. And so just in the year 1976, we're looking at 
trips, three trips to Europe for ABA conferences and other reasons, uh, trips that could take him to Germany for six to nine days, um, UK for two to three days, Italy for three days. And in the year 1976, the Scalias had eight of the nine children that they would ultimately have. And they ranged in age in 1976 from one year to 15 years of age. And as I say in the book for Maureen Scalia, who is described by one of the Scalia children as smarter than even than uh, their dad, uh, who was uh, even more conservative than Anton Scalia, uh, and who was every inch his, his intellectual equal. Uh, for, for Maureen Scalia, raising these eight kids in 1976 with, with, with her husband gone for six to nine days, these were the hardest days. Uh, and uh, Scalia would say, I handled the Constitution and Maureen handled everything else. She raised these kids with not much assistance from me. And he would say, there's not a dullard in the bunch. <laughs> uh, of course, they're very accomplished, um, each of them. Uh, and so his family, I would say, is probably his uh, another of his greatest accomplishments. Um, for a third, um, I mean, we've, we've covered the personal and the professional. Um, I think his uh, reputation for... Uh, maintaining close friendships across the ideological divide would be another great accomplishment. We were just talking about it with RBG, but he was also great friends with Elena Kagan. It took her hunting, taught her how to hunt. In in a certain respect, uh, Scalia found it easier to get along with the liberals on the Supreme Court than with the conservatives, because the liberals, in his view, pretty much always behaved as they're expected to behave, whereas he felt that some of the conservatives, so-called conservatives on the Supreme Court, were kind of uh, putting their finger in the air and uh, waiting to decide uh, their cases based on what they thought the New York Times might say about them. That wasn't Scalia's way. I, I, having said that, James Rosen, I can't wait for you to finish your next book so we could get into him on the Supreme Court, because this has been a great conversation, and we're so grateful that you came on to join us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Can't wait for the next book. We'll get into more of maybe some of the decisions and maybe some of those um, antagonistic moments. James Rosen, one more time. Well, the book is uh, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. Uh, 1936 to 1986. The author is James Rosen, who is also the chief White House correspondent over at Newsmax. James, where could folks buy the book and where, again, once more, can they follow you on social media? You can follow me at James Rosen TV on Twitter. That's at James Rosen TV. You can buy this book in any brick and mortar bookstore where fine books are sold. Amazon.com, Books A Million. Regnery.com will give you a discount on orders of uh, over 50 bucks. James Rosen, thank you again for coming on the show. You are welcome back on the front line with Joe and Joe. Anytime, our brother. This has been a great conversation. Thank it you so much. for me as well, the Josephine. Thank you both. The Josephine. It, I told you we're stealing that. Thank you all out there for joining us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York City metropolitan area. Download the app, share it with your friends. Follow Joe and I wherever you see us on uh, social media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Like, subscribe, share, follow. Do all that fun stuff. Help us out. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.